Glad that you're here. A little different chair set up today. If you're a first-time guest, it doesn't usually like, look like this in here. We, uh, we, when we rented this theater, when we uh, bought this, we haven't bought it, but when we leased this theater, we want to make sure it was a community resource event. And so we've got Ruby Mechanicals in town for the next two weekends doing Romeo and Juliet in here. So this is the Romeo and Juliet set, not quite finished. but uh, So appreciate your flexibility on that. And uh, we're super excited if you're in town for this weekend and looking for a place to come and get a little artistic influence. Check it out. Uh, all right, today we continue, actually conclude our series called Just This Once, part six of this thing. We've done five parts leading up to this. If you missed any of them, they're available at eastlaketricities.com slash talks or on uh, the podcast or do whatever. But essentially, it's been a look at a series um, of signs that John writes out in his gospel. So John was one of the gospel writers, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the fourth of the, of the four, basically, and quite different than the first three. The first three kind of stuck to the same timeline, the same... Uh, uh, stories, the same things. John kind of went all over the place a little bit, and he d- adjusted things to be able to tell his story. He probably wrote it late in age. Um, he had a unique perspective on Jesus being one of his disciples um, and one of his closest disciples, because Luke wasn't even one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, Matthew was, but uh, had a unique kind of way of doing things. John was like, here's what I saw in the, in the teaching of the person of Jesus. And I came to the conclusion about who he was as the Messiah and the Son of God. Um, and I had a, I had a a respect, and I, I had a perspective on Jesus' person and his identity that, you, that may be hard to imagine how I came to that conclusion. So let me illustrate for you why I made the jump to actually and genuinely believe that he rose from the dead and that he is God personified in that person. Like, I, I get that that would be hard to believe. So let me explain to you the steps into which I got there. So he listed off some signs for us. First, he did this, this uh, water into wine thing at Cana, and he's like establishing some, some of the things about uh, the old covenant and the new covenant. And then he healed a, a man who was born uh, blind, and, and a, a man who was paralyzed from birth. And he did all of these different healings, and they weren't just generally acts of kindness. There was a point and a purpose to all of these things. These signs as, as signs do, pointed to something. There's a destination involved. There's something that they wanted to get to. It wasn't just acts of kindness themselves, but who he was, like, who are we dealing with? If this kind of person can do this kind of thing, who are we dealing with? And so we have not taken it necessarily verse by verse throughout John, but sign by sign. John would say, this was the first sign, this was the second sign, this was the third sign, so on and so forth. Up to today, we're going to be talking about the sixth sign uh, that is involved. The seventh sign would be the actual resurrection of Jesus and why John says this is the conclusion that I came to about him. But that's a big jump. Let me tell you why I I did that. So today, the sixth sign, uh, the story of a man named Lazarus, it's going to be in John chapter 11 is where we're going to pick up uh, our story. It's going to be on the screens, but there's a lot of verses today. So this story covers about 48 verses uh, in total. So if you text the word notes, that thing on your phone, you'll be able to kind of collect them all along there because there's no way you'll be able to write this thing in. Or go back and read for yourself because there are a few points in the story where I'm going to skip a few verses just for the sake of time uh, for us. But here's where it starts. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. Uh, he was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. These would be familiar stories. In the, the person, if you had been reading John or reading through the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, these are familiar characters. They would be Jesus's uh, probably closest friends outside of his disciples disciple group. So uh, these are his non work friends. All right, these are these are the people who uh, probably financially supported him, relationally supported him, and they just had a close connection with one another, as we'll see uh, in in a moment. Um, and this is uh, about a day's journey away from Galilee, kind of where he's from up in the north. Uh, and th- their word comes that Lazarus is sick. So Mary and Martha send a messenger to Jesus, and this is captured in, in, in the second verse here. Um, and it says, Jesus, come quickly. The one that you love 
is sick. Imagine being so close to somebody, especially somebody as popular and, and whatever as Jesus, and saying the one that you love is sick. They don't even have to, they don't feel like they even need to say his name, which is sort of a test, and it's also quite a bit of a flex, actually. Like, how close do you think you need to be to be like, you know, the one that you love is sick, and for Jesus to know who it is? Have you ever answered your phone at any point, and you picked it up, and you go, hello, and the person on the other end of the line goes, hey, it's me. In your mind, you're going, who's me? Which one? Who's this? I don't, I don't understand. And you, you want to get them talking to figure out which me they're, and they, they think they're on it's me status in terms of our relationship. And you're like, I'm going to need a little bit more, more than that from you. Hey, I'm, I'm really bad with voices, right? Or whatever, whatever excuses you need to make, you're trying to slowly and slowly figure this thing out. Or imagine somebody from our kids team, Amy comes down the hallway right now, taps you on your shoulder and you've got two kids. You've got kids in this room over here, elementary, and you've got kids in early childhood over here. And they go, I'm so sorry to interrupt service. I know you're like focused on all that stuff and Brent's talking, whatever, but hey, listen, the kid that you love, they need you. And you're like, which room do I go into first, right? Like which, which one, which kid needs me? And then when you go into that one, it's obviously the wrong one. And then the other one goes, daddy, daddy, what took you so long? Well, I went to go see the other one because they said that the one that I love is my favorite kid is sick. Anyways, a little, little bit of uh, drama on this. And he, when he heard this, Jesus said this, this sickness will not end in death. He, he hears the news. It's probably read in some sort of a letter. The messenger comes up and he's, and he's with, this, with his disciples. And he says, this sickness will not end in death. Now, if there was kind of a live stream going on, what we know in this story is that because it was a, a, a day's walk away, the journey or whatever, Lazarus is almost certainly already dead at this point. And Jesus has this public statement. He's come out and said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the God's son may be glorified through it. This is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So once again, Jesus has done this a couple times now in the book of John. He is leveraging the platform of human pain and suffering for God's glory. It's as if he allows somebody to get sick or to eventually die because I'm gonna do something and in the end, it's all gonna make really great sense. Um, which is like encouraging, but it's also very discouraging. Like if you read this and it makes you uncomfortable that Jesus or God or a God would allow somebody to experience pain and suffering because it's gonna make him look good later, can't you do that without letting me suffer? Which is a legitimate question to ask. Like if that's ever been an issue for you, like you're in good company that's kind of where this story is going uh, for us. Instead of pointing these things away from the existence of a good God, because that's what we can do a lot of times. When tragedy strikes, when things happen, when people get sick, when healing is, is the only thing, you know, like we're like praying, 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 and nothing is happening. And, and it, the sickness that comes wasn't a result of, oh, she smoked like a chimney her whole life. It kind of makes sense, whatever. If you, if you look at it and you'd be like, it, this doesn't make sense. Why is there human suffering and, and pain in the world? And the existence of a supposedly good and loving God who's all-powerful and can do some things, um, it's, this is a really difficult zone for us to kind of reconcile and categorize things that don't make sense. This is so non-intuitive for, for Jesus to say these things um, and to, to live in this way and to leverage th these things in this way that John knows it. And so he has to immediately provide some context to it, which he does in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved, just in case you were, you know, thought differently. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he has to say this because at some point, it doesn't look like it. And it doesn't sound like it. Because he's, he's seeing this and he's talking about it working in this way. Now, we've all had the
periods in, in, our, in our life where uh, we go through some things, we go through tragedies or whatever, and we go, listen, God, I know that like you love me and whatever. It just, there's times when it doesn't feel like it and it doesn't look like it. And I look around and I think, but do you? But do you really? Are you, are you good? Is it, are, you, are you able? Are you able to do anything here? Because it just doesn't feel like it. And so John really doesn't want to miss us, uh, us to miss this next part. He assures us that he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now, imagine getting a phone call from your school. As a parent, like if you're a parent and your kids are in school, and the, the phone rings on, on your cell phone, and on the, num- on the thing, on the caller ID is the school. Like, you know this isn't good. Either my kid's sick, something's wrong. He punched some kid on the playground. He got punched on the playground. Something happened here. I'm not looking for this phone call. You answer the phone, and they go, listen, there's been an accident. Um, your son is heading to Cadillac or Lords or whatever, and, you know, whatever. And you'd be like, okay, I'll be there in two hours. I'll be there. I'll be there tomorrow. I'll go check on him tomorrow, right? That is like... Uh, they're going to make another phone call to CPS after that is involved, right? Like there's, no, you drop everything. Like this is a free pass to speed and do whatever you need to do to go get your kid. Jesus hears this and says, A, this sickness is not going to end in death. I'm going to turn it for my glory. And then B, we're going to hang out for a couple more days and let things kind of simmer a little bit. Let the emotions kind of simmer because I'm going to do something great uh, in this way. He's staging something. And then Jesus said to his disciples, let us finally go back to Judea. But rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you're going back. Like he makes these plans. All right, we're going to go back and we're going to, you know, figure some things out now. You want to go back? But last time you went, they tried to stone you. And this is the disciples couching their statements of, but Jesus, we're trying to be protective of you with actual self-preservation for them. Because imagine being one of Jesus' disciples, probably traveling together, close to each other, and then people trying to stone him, and they're like, we're concerned for the accuracy of the people throwing rocks at you, that perhaps it might miss and overshot might be us. Like, we're concerned, like rightfully so, if something happens to you, something could also happen to us, which is a legitimate, legitimate concern because when he's arrested in Galilee, what do they do? They scatter and they hide in a, in, in a room for fear of their own life. They're fearful that, well, we can't just take out the ringleader. We also have to take out the, the, his henchmen and all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, we're concerned. Do you, are you sure you want to go do this? Uh, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Sorry, what? Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Peter said to the other disciples, I think he is slipping, right? Just kidding. That's an addition from me. That's what I would have said. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. What are you talking about here, Jesus? He's making a statement in real life. Like for them, no electricity, right? So we, we walk during the daytime because we can see what, what is our obstacles in front of us. At night, it's a little harder to do it. We stub our toe most often at night. When was the last time you stubbed your toe in the daytime? Pretty rare, right? Uh, and we don't step on our kids' toys in the daytime because we see them there. He knows this. He's like, there's a stumbling that takes place. There's a, there's a feeling now. There's a, there's a sense of being lost that comes more in the darkness. And he keeps referencing, again, himself. He'll do this several times in John's letter. John remembers Jesus liking himself to the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I come and my light pierces the darkness. There is a sense in which 
My presence brings a clarity of existence more now than ever will be again. He's, this is Jesus telling his disciples, I know that there's gonna be a temptation for you to leave because there's danger involved in continuing to follow me around. But if you leave now, you will be missing out on an opportunity to see with clarity who I am and what I mean to the, for the world in this way. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Meaning there's, there's a limited opportunity. Day, evening comes that like there's, it's either now or never, right? And if you leave now, you might miss out on perhaps the most enlightening thing. See what I did there? Enlightening thing that I'll do to reinforce my identity that you will share the story of for years to come, for audiences to come. And if you miss out on the light of the world, you'll stumble around in darkness, in a world without meaning. He's trying to say this. Listen, I, when I'm coming, my existence and my presence gives you a, a better sense of why evil exists, a, a better sense of what to do about it. There is a sense of my, uh, of my uh, ability to give you a perspective on life that actually provides you with answers as opposed to just being lost, wondering about meaning, wondering about the existence of why evil exists in the world and what is good. Is there any th- such thing as good? And, 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 and clinging for any sort of truth in any sort of format, it leads us down towards like, l- listen, he goes, my way of, of seeing things and doing things is such a, a, a clearness that if you don't have it, you're gonna miss it. Don't miss out on this. After he had said this, verse 11, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm gonna go there to go wake him up. Verse 12, Lord, this is Andrew, one of his disciples. Lord, if he sleeps, it's gonna get better, right? Imagine attempting to give medical advice to the creator of the universe. Imagine looking how silly this is in retrospect, as John is writing this many, many years later about writing Andrew in, not as a hero, but as a guy who goes, oh, Jesus, like the way that you tell your kid when you, they go, my tummy hurts. And you go, you know what's best for that? Sleep. You little mongrel, go to sleep. You'll feel better in the morning, right? That's, that's kind of what's taking place. Hey, it's better if he just sleeps. Why would we go wake him up? Hey, again, what's he trying to do? I don't want to go. <laughs> this is self-preservation at its finest. Oh, well, you shouldn't go because you're going to get hurt. Okay, you dislodge that kind of complaint. Oh, we shouldn't go. He should be sleeping. Sleep's good for him, right? Jesus had been speaking of Lazarus' death, which makes sense. That's kind of how they talked in the language that they used. People would fall asleep. They fell asleep because they believed that eventually one day this idea of a resurrection, that if, if bodily resurrection is to take place, then then perhaps death is just sleep, like soul sleep or whatever. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So they told, or so he told them plainly, hey guys, Lazarus is dead. And to which a couple of them probably would be in their mind would be thinking, wait a second, two days ago, you just said this sickness will not end in death. Now you're saying he's dead? Like what, what gives Jesus? What's going on with this? And what comes next is terrible for Mary and Martha, but it is wonderful for you and me. The events and the way that they transpire, the fact that Lazarus is going to die, the fact that they are going to bury him, they're going to leave him out probably for a day or two to see, and then they hear that Jesus, did Jesus get the message? Did he, what happened? Yeah, he got it, and then they hung out for a couple more days. What in the world? Okay, fine. We're burying him, we're putting him in the cave, and we will hold out anticipation and hope that all of this makes sense someday and we believe in the future resurrection. We believe that this isn't the end, that somehow there's life beyond this life and and all of that, but that's enough 
four now. Jesus had been speaking to Lazarus' death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him finally. And then I love this phrase from Thomas. Thomas is the guy who uh, later on would become known as Doubting Thomas, because after the news of Jesus' resurrection, he goes, I just, I'm having a hard time. I'm going to need to see him and touch him for me to believe that he rose from the dead, which we go, we oftentimes categorize doubting Thomas as like, ah, oh, I can't believe he doubted. Like, you, I would have doubted. You would have doubted. Like, anytime somebody goes, somebody rose from the dead, I'm going to need to see that. I'm going to need to see some tax returns. I'm going to need to touch some things. I'm going to need to, like, play a game with them. I'm going to need something along these lines. Thomas engages in one of my favorite little um, pictures of the authenticity of the text because you would not make this up. If you, were, if you were John writing about them and this didn't happen, then Thomas would think you just wrote me in as a moron. But he goes this. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Wah, wah, wah. Drama. You know what I mean? You've been around these people who like in the classroom setting at school, they're like, let's just do this, guys. This is good for our education. You're like, you brown noser, you teacher's pet, you liar. You don't really want to do this either. Anyways, we're going to go down and may we die with him as well. Meanwhile, in Bethany, the body had eventually been entombed. Verse 20 says this, when Martha heard that Jesus was finally coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died which shows a couple of things. One, it shows a genuine level of hope and faith that he had the ability to do some things. Um, and even to the point where if you'd been here, I know within my heart you would have saved him. But it also harbors a resistance and a bitterness towards him that you felt before. Um, in some sort of a uh, marriage relationship, committed relationship, something along those lines where you go, listen, I love you but I am so mad at you right now. I think I'll probably get around to forgiving you at some point, somehow. Like, I'm, I'm not ready to like call this thing off or call it quits, but I, I, I'm, I could strangle you. I, I, like, words are not coming easily to me right now. If you were here, you could have done something about this. And I know that you got the message and I know that you stayed two extra days. And I, I don't understand why. Um, and right now it feels like, it feels like you don't care or you don't love or whatever. You could have, you didn't, and I'll never forgive you for that. And I mentioned this in, in terms of relationships, uh, interpersonal relationships, that this can also take place in our relationship with, with God too, right? You could have done something about this. You didn't. And like, I still believe I maintain a shred of faith as she's going to. She's going to be like, I get it. Like, I'm not going anywhere, but I'm really mad at you right now. <laughs> I love this. This is so genuine and so honest and so authentic and so kind of where we're at in terms of even sometimes tragedies and, and suffering and pain that takes place in our life where we look up and we'd be like, listen, I still think that you're there. I think that you're in control and you can do whatever you want to do. And I don't know why you didn't in this way, and maybe I'll never understand, but, um, and I'm really angry right now. I'm really frustrated, but uh, I'm not like leaving. I'm not walking away anywhere. 
I think you see this a lot. I remember reading through some C.S. Lewis stuff about dealing with the death of his wife, having to watch his wife die, even though he was older and probably um, like more apt to, to die, and she died first. And, and he's writing in, in a grief observed about this and, and really dealing with um, death of a loved one and, and not really understanding how deep that that goes on a real level as opposed to just like, you know, he's like, I've written about pain and death and loss before. But that was all just like philosophical. And now I'm like feeling it. And I'm like shaking my fist at God going, how could you let this happen? But I know that even now God will give give you whatever you ask. That's Martha's response. Which is, I don't think she has in mind the what actually takes place. Like, spoiler alert, he's gonna raise he's gonna raise him from the dead. Okay. Um, I don't think that that's what she's asking, like crossing her fingers for. And why do I not think that? Because you and I, she had never seen that before. And you and I don't think that when we go to a funeral, do we? We show up going, maybe today, it's not over yet. You don't. When, when you get the funeral notice, when you get it, okay, it's gonna be Thursday at four o'clock or whatever, you go like hoping that they're okay in you know whatever comes after this life and, and we want to take care of the family and we want to remember him or remember her for who she was and who he was and celebrate the life together. I, I really don't think that she was expecting any, anything more than, than that, which is why Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And her response is, oh, I know, he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This was their Jewish belief of um, at some point, the Messiah returns and all those who are dead, all of the saints rise and, and there's life beyond this life and it has to do with the physical bodies, which is why they didn't believe in, uh, um, I can't think of the word. Anyways, they, they, uh, they, they, they love, and, but she assumes he's in preacher mode. Oh, you're in preacher mode. That's what you're supposed to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. We all rise on the last day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything happens for a reason. Okay, yeah. And when, you, when you're suffering through grief and somebody comes at you and they're trying to be nice and they're not even sure what to say and they throw out these Bible verses like, no, it's okay, all things work out for the people you know, who love God and serve according to his purpose. And you're like, yeah, 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 that sounds good. Thank you. Why don't you keep that for now? I don't really need that right now. And I don't know what I need. I don't need anything from you, but whatever. And the next thing that she says is absolutely, or what comes next, not the next thing she says. It's like, it's, Incredible, his response. He sees this hurting woman who is clinging to a belief and hope, but like desperate and just in pain. And he goes, I'm, I'm not here to give you a sermon. I'm not here to talk about the theology in a time of crisis. Here's his response, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. You are living with the hope that there is life beyond this life and that what you do in this life matters for something that comes beyond. That's a hope, the blessed hope that you cling to. And he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. All of those things that you hope for, I am the embodiment of those. I am the reason you can believe those things. It is the most 
open statement. Other times, like in the verses leading up to this, people would be like, hey, are, are you like the Messiah? Would you just tell us if you are or not? And he would say, listen, why do I need to tell you? I'm showing you. I'm giving you all these signs. And then in this instant, he lays it out and spells it out for her so clearly. I am the resurrection and the life. And there is a feeling and a sense of which you kind of got it. Remember watching The Matrix for the very first time? And Neo understands he's the one and the bullets freeze in midair and he grabs it and you're at the edge of your seat going, oh, dude, this is going to be so awesome. And you know it and you're like, he gets it. He understands it. He finally figured this thing out in this moment. Jesus is saying, listen, I am that resurrection in the life. You don't have a category for this, but I am the living embodiment of everything you've hoped for. What you think about me is the most important thoughts that you will ever have. The light has come into the world pay attention. The light has come into the world. Would you pay attention? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by living in me will never die. He begins to speak about like this idea of death being a doorway, a transition, a something, the life beyond this. And to Martha, he turns and he says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. And there's a sense in which you go, good for her. And there's also a sense in which you say, I don't think she fully understands what it is she's saying yes to. And Jesus would probably say the same thing. Like, do you understand? Do you believe me when I'm saying all this? And she'd be like, sure, sure, yeah. I mean, great, right? And it comes back to last week. We said, listen, you don't have to understand everything to believe something. I don't think she understood everything, but she clung to the belief of something. I believe something. I believe that something about what you say is true. Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come in this world. She goes inside eventually to tell Mary. Uh, Mary comes out. He sees that she's been crying. She's got the puffy eyes, the things. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Mary and Martha said, come and see, Lord. And then he engages in something that shows uh, the human, that when he came down, he was both fully God and fully human, because in this fully human moment, he cries, he weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And, and when um, later on, this would be in, I think, I'm trying to remember if it's like, a, like 11th or 12th century or whatever, but that people would take, smart people would take the Bible and it's as a one big giant document and say, hey, let's make it easier for people to understand kind of where things are at and how to get to where they want to be. We're gonna insert chapters and verses in. Those would not come for hundreds and hundreds of years after this stuff was written and compiled together when the Bible comes together in the fourth century. Anyways, when they did this, whoever did this broke this down and said, you know what? There is enough emotion and enough things going on in these two words that they deserve their own verse. Not the first part of a verse, not the last part of a verse, John chapter 11, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. The joke growing up in like church youth group was always, I, I memorized a verse this week, right? John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Ah, give me my candy, right? Um, uh, this is, but for, for what this is, is this is, the, the, the reason this is so powerful is because he knows what he's about to do. He knows the ending of the story, and yet he still fully engages in the emotion of the moment. <clears throat> Imagine watching a movie like Schindler's List and not knowing that Germany loses in the end. Imagine watching that and the emotion involved in the depth of that. We watch it differently going, this is super sad, no question about it. But we know that Hitler loses. We know that this happens. And I know that doesn't justify the loss and the death of life, but like 
Imagine going through that and thinking that there is no justification, that there is no good ending, that there is no like wondering and, and just simply having to live with, yeah, yeah, we know that someday everybody kind of rises from the dead, but that, like, that's not the timeline that we wanted it to work on. We wanted there to be a reason for it now. Help me understand now why this is taking place. Jesus engages in the fullness of the depth of the human emotion. And for like maybe public reasons, cries, but maybe, be, maybe just in a genuine, I want to feel what the emotions are involved in experiencing a loss like this, even having knowing what happened or what comes next. Then the Jews said, verse 36, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have done something about this? Had he been here? I mean, we're kind of giving him like kudos for like being emotional about it, but like he could have done something about it and he didn't. If he could have, he would have, but he didn't. So maybe he can't. And we're frustrated. And again, it's another thing of um, we, as us knowing the end of the story, we feel like he's setting the stage for something significant. But in the moment they're thinking, it's cool if, if that's what you want to do. But like the timeline for us would be, could we really understand it? Right now, Jesus, once more uh, deeply moved, came to the tomb and said, take away the stone, he said. The whole place went silent. Mary and Martha gasped, verse 39. But, but Lord, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Right? Imagine four days of a dead body and what that looks like, smells like. I mean, have you ever smelled refrigerated fish after four days? It's been in the fridge and you're like, oh, there's a little concern there, you know? I think it's okay. If we butter it up enough, it'll be fine. Verse 40. <laughs> Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And here's what he's about to do. He's about to take something that happens in eternity and condense it into one afternoon. As Christians, we believe, or the, the, these people would be taught to believe, that there is a reason, there's an understanding that comes for everything about human pain and suffering in this world. Now, we may not know it this side of eternity and the timeline might not suit our, because we want to know why these bad things happen. Well, God, why did you allow this to happen? And he goes, and, and the response is, you'll find out, you'll figure it out, you'll figure it out. Trust me, trust me, trust me, there's something going on here. And we are told then to trust, and it kind of can feel like a cop-out sometimes, I totally understand that, but we are told to trust that one day it all makes sense. And in this story, in this instance, and in this moment, he condenses eternity into an afternoon and says, let me help make sense of this for you now. Not that he promises to do that every single time, but that's the point of this story. Let me show you that I am in control and I do know what I'm doing. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank thee. He begins to pray. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I always thought it's interesting, Jesus praying. He does it a couple times. You're like, you're God. Are you talking to yourself? Are you talking up there? It's like, who, who are you talking to? It's, you're you. Anyways, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Here's the deal. God, I, listen, I know we're on the same page. This is for them. This is a show. Look at me. I'm about to be a part of something that you're going to be like, only God could do something like that. And then he's going to be like, exactly. Now you get it. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out, or some versions, come forth. That's a better, come forth. Feels Lord of the Rings-ish. Verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. These are graphic details from a man who was there, probably to watch this thing take place. Therefore, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I'll bet they did. When you watch somebody dead for four days come walking out like a mummy and then have a conversation with you, I'll bet they did. And the formula in John stays consistent. People saw something, and then they believed. They saw, and then they believed. They saw water turned into wine, then they believed. They saw a man born blind, then he can see, they believed. They watched a guy who was paralyzed at birth, then they believed. They watched their friend die. They knew he was dead for four days. You can't pull something like that off. Then they saw him raised from the dead, and they're like, well, what other option do we have? What are we gonna do? How do we get around this? Word got around, as you can imagine it would. Verse 46 says this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is like Congress or the religious ruling council at the time. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, as if they had an option, right? If we continue to let him go on like this, what are the consequences of that? Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. If we continue to let him do this, people have no other option but to see and to believe that he is who he says that he is. There's a guy named Rodney Stark who's an author, historian guy. Used to be at UW. I don't know where he's at now, but he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity from a non-Christian perspective, not any like... I'm, you know, I'm trying to convince people of Christianity, literally trying to explain in history the rise of Christianity. How did Christianity make it out of the first century? And he comes up with all kinds of theories as to why this could be. And it could be um, because like the Roman road system was just new and in place and the dissemination of information uh, was now easier than ever. It could be because um, Christians believed genuinely about loving others ahead of themselves. And so uh, they would like start hospitals when everybody would be running out of, of towns that, that had the plague, they'd be running in and, and then they would heal them. And then when you've been healed by somebody or, or taken care of in your, in your sickness, like you have an association with them that goes beyond this. Um, it could be because they, um, their, their church was filled with disenfranchised people, slaves, poor people, um, women, uh, all, all kinds. They, like, they had very little barriers to inclusion. And so therefore, maybe they were so popular because of that. He has all kinds of reasons. But at the very end of the book, I'll save you like 10 hours of reading. He gets to the end and he goes, Honestly, the best explanation for this, the only reason that this thing could have exploded the way that it did and have such an impact that like a few years down the road, they would be the ones respond, like Nero is blaming the fire of Rome on the Christians. They'd be persecuted for their growing numbers. And eventually then uh, Constantine would say that it's so big politically, it makes sense for me to become Christian because there's so many of them. It's crazy. How did it make it out of the first century like that? His response is, it only works if they genuinely believed that they saw somebody die and rise again. It only works if they genuinely believe a God who overcomes death, who we can't explain this away. We saw too many things. It has shaped our belief system. 
It has shaped what we believe about him. What other option do we have? And John writes all of this down for future generations to say, I want you to come to the same conclusion that I saw. And I know I get that you think that this is a huge giant jump. Let me space it out for you. Let me tell you the events leading up to this. I saw some things that cannot be unseen. And that's the reason I believe. And I I just want you to be able to see it so that maybe, maybe, maybe just this once, You'll believe me when I tell you that these were signs pointing to the identity of him and that there is a God who loved the world so much. John chapter three, verse 16, that he gave his only son to die on a cross for those who believe in his name. For the world, for anyone, for anyone. So may we be the type of people who just this once perhaps take a look. Don't miss the story. May we be the type of people who see these miracles not as great things in and of themselves, but pointers towards the identity of who Jesus was. And may we join with the community of saints, the community of believers, people today, people uh, in past history who believe that Jesus was more than just the man, literally the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. So, all right. Would you stand and me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll be going. Father, today, we thank you for John's story, for his testimony, for his witness to what he saw. May that shape what we believe about who you are, and may we cling to that statement that John wrote later on when he said, he quoted Jesus saying, blessed are those people who, uh, who don't, ha- have not seen all the things that I saw. He, he ta- he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you believe because you saw some things, but there's going to come a group of people who are going to believe things about me based on the testimony and the rumors of other people. Lucky are those people there for their faith is great. That's where the category of things that we find ourselves. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with all of this information that we've heard and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen.